We're going to start off with our question today, and that is simply this. How do we find real peace with God? It's a great question. We've talked about shalom or the peace of God, but I think it's important for us to recognize how we truly find peace with God. The world is asking questions. Is there a God? If there is, who is he? Or who are they? Or could there even be a God? And right now, I don't know about you, but as we look around the world, I would say that several individuals are anywhere but at peace with God. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, friends that have gathered here this morning, we're going to talk essentially about how we find peace with God. And my prayer for all of us is, is that that would encourage our hearts to go out and tell others about how they too might find peace with God. But in an order to do that, we're going to have to move forward and we're going to have to look away from the birth of Christ toward the mission of Christ. And what I'd like to start off by saying is this simple phrase that I think is so important for us to look at and recognize, and that is this, that you cannot have the cross without Christ, and you cannot have Christ without the cross. Those simple words are essentially the impact or the crux of our Christian faith. We have to recognize and realize that as we celebrate Christmas, the joy of God with us, our Emmanuel, the birth of Jesus, we have to remember and focus on the fact that Christ didn't come just to be some great moral teacher. Christ didn't come just to give adages about how we can improve upon our life. Christ didn't come just to give us ways that we might be able to be better people. Christ came to go to the cross. And the reason that we say this statement, you cannot have the cross without Christ, and you cannot have Christ without the cross, is for the following adage. First and foremost, what we need to see when we realize that you cannot have the cross without Christ Several individuals during Jesus' day would be crucified. We realize that. We recognize that. We see that even in history. But what is unique about Christ is what we're going to see in a moment. Christ's death, being fully God, was the substitution for our sins, bringing us eternal life. But then also, you have to realize that you cannot have Christ without the cross. What do we mean by that? Christ's mission from the beginning, being born in a manger, was to go to the cross. That had been prophesied. That had been told. And so one of the things that I want to encourage us in is, as we think about peace with God, may we keep the mission of Christ in our minds. At Christmas time, as we look and as we celebrate the babe in the manger, may we also look forward in history, realizing that that babe would grow up to be a man, being fully God, who would then go to the cross on our behalf so that we might have peace with God. We're going to take a look at that, and if you would take a moment, we're going to look in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, and we're going to talk about how Christ brings us to peace with him. You'll notice in the uh, passage, it talks about the supremacy of Christ, and one of the things that I want to encourage us in, particularly as we look back to the book of Malachi, we talked about God gives us his best, therefore we should give him our best. 
And to be honest with you, I find no better passage that demonstrates the best of Christ that has been given. We read, and before we start, Paul is writing to the church at Coloss or Colossae, depending upon how you want to say that. And the primary purpose of his writing is this, that the church had been doing well. They had essentially come forward and understood the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. But over a period of time, individuals had come in and were permeating the church with false teaching. What they were teaching, well, there are some postulations. A couple of things have been thought or said in the commentaries. Individuals would say that most likely either Jewish people were coming into the church and they were moving essentially the teaching back to the Jewish tradition, that they were denying Christ as the Messiah or denying Christ as Savior. But another postulation that was being thought about was this, that people were coming forward and they were saying, hmm, that's good, Jesus is fine, but there is a secret way, there is a deeper way, there is something behind Jesus that is hidden. And therefore, as you kind of drive deeper into yourself or as you go deeper in knowledge and become more spiritual, you can transcend Jesus into these other levels and really discover the truth. You can essentially transcend to the ultimate God, which is known as Sophia. Now, for some of you, that might ring a bell. Some of you might be recognizing and say, I think I've heard that somewhere. This was essentially, as commentaries would say, combating a heretical doctrine known as Gnosticism, or the Gnostics. The Greek word gnosis, or knowledge. The greater knowledge you have, you transcend Jesus, and you come to Sophia. Now, the other thing that you might want to think about is, this idea is exactly what the Da Vinci Code was all about. How many of you remember the book, The Da Vinci Code? Several of you might have read it. I see some heads nodding. This essentially potential heretical doctrine that was permeating the church at Coloss was essentially this idea of gnosis or Gnostic thought. If you've ever read The Da Vinci Code, there's this idea that really Jesus was this person, Jesus was this individual, but as you kind of gain greater knowledge, you really begin to transcend what um, the, the idea of Gnosis is. The other thing that I want to throw out to you is, is how many of you are familiar with the shack? Anybody read the shack? Okay, I'm just going to tell you this. Gnosticism all over it. If you read it, it's in interesting. Uh, take a moment, and what is the name of the person who is God? Sophia. Okay? The ultimate God in Gnostic teaching was a transcendence to Sophia. And interestingly enough, who is portrayed as God? A female in that book. So this is what Paul was combating. Paul was going to come in and essentially what he was going to do was he going to just say simply this. Let's look to what we have in Christ, but let's also realize what Christ has done for us so that we don't move toward either Jewish teaching or we try to find more beyond Jesus in Gnostic thought. Now, you're looking at me and you're saying, well, why do we need to know that? Well, let's take a minute. That's not happening in our world today, is it? A lot of people are looking and they're saying, Jesus isn't enough. Or maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah. 
Or maybe Jesus was a person and he came and lived on earth and he gave us good thoughts or good ideas, but he certainly wasn't God. He certainly wasn't God in the flesh. And more importantly, if he wasn't God in the flesh, then what is asked of us in Christ cannot be true. Because brothers and sisters, friends that are gathered here, what I'm wanting to tell you today is simply this, that when we look at who Christ is, when we look particularly at this passage, we are confronted with a decision. And that decision is simply this, is Jesus Christ God in the flesh, is he Messiah, and is he Lord of our lives? You cannot remain neutral on this. And so this morning, what I want to encourage us in is if we want to find peace with God, we need to look at the supremacy of Christ and how it brings about us to peace with him. Again, we're in the book of Colossians. We're looking at verse 15. And this is what Paul is saying about Jesus. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies with your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. How do we find peace with God? How can we be at peace with him? Well, brothers and sisters, this passage shows us exactly how we can be at peace with God, but it also demonstrates the grace cost that it took in order for us to be at peace with God. First thing that I want to show you in the first couple of verses, 15 through 17, is this. We need to remember and recognize that Christ is Lord over all creation, and in him all things hold together. We're not just worshiping some great person. We're not just worshiping the next president. We're not just worshiping the great next moral leader or business advocate. We are worshiping God in the flesh. And one of the things that I want to show you is Paul starts off and he says, we need to go back and demonstrate to you who truly Jesus Christ is and was so that you don't forget and think that he was just some passerby that was a flash in the pan for a moment to bring some sort of revelation, but then to die in sort of time or non-eternality. And so Paul starts off and he says, he is the image of the invisible God. 
Now, why does he say this? Well, the first thing that I want you to see is focus on the word image. Okay? The word there in Greek is icon. Okay? Now, how many of you are familiar with the word icon? Well, it's what we derive essentially on our computers. You have an icon. It's the copy of a folder, or it tells you what it is. It is the exact image of who God is. And Paul is being very specific here. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. Why is that important? Because essentially what he is saying is this. If you want to see God... Look at Jesus. Now, I want to take a minute, and I want to, to be very careful on this, all right? It's not, it's not like a, a reflection. It's not sort of a photocopy. It is God. If you want to see God, you look at Jesus, because Jesus is God. Now, in this, I want to take a moment, and I want to also help us to see that oftentimes there would be individuals who would come forward and say, well, Jesus wasn't God. A lot of heretical teaching has come off of this passage. They look and they say, oh, we're going to see in a moment that he was the firstborn over all creation. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Oh, Jesus must have been created, meaning he didn't exist and then he did. But before we do... We're going to lay the foundation for all of us to recognize that Jesus is the icon of God. He is the image, meaning he is similar in likeness or form. If you want to see God, you look to Jesus. Now also with that, we see in Scripture the following statements. In John 14, 9, Jesus himself says this, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Think about that for a minute. When Jesus says that statement, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, what is he doing? Number one, he is making a proclamation that indeed he is God, but number two, he is sealing his fate. The moment that he tells people, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, he is stating, I am God, but to the world around him, he is committing blasphemy. Because anyone proclaiming to be God was blaspheming God. And that seals his fate, which moves him toward the mission of what he comes to do, which is to go to the cross. Hence, why I said earlier, you cannot have the cross without Christ, and you cannot have Christ without the cross. Interestingly enough, we see the writer of Hebrews say this about Jesus. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. Let's take a moment. Let's look at that. The sun is the radiance. The sun, being Jesus, okay, is the radiance of God's glory. If you want to look at the glory of God, look to Jesus, and you will see the radiance of his glory. And then he says, and the exact representation of his being. Not a partial representation of his being, not a photocopy of his being, not a knockoff or some sort of cheap uh, second-rate representation of his being, but is the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is the image of God. And so we need to remember that because in a moment we're going to recognize that as Christ goes to the cross to bring us peace, only God in the flesh can do so to appease the wrath of God of which we are under apart from Jesus Christ. 
Then it continues on. And Paul says, not only is he the image of God, but he's the firstborn over all creation. And that's very interesting, because as we look at it, we read, and oftentimes you see firstborn. Oh, well, that means that maybe he came into existence. Well, yes, he did. But we also know from Scripture that Jesus has eternally existed. And so why does Paul use the word firstborn? Well, we need to look at this, and the word in Greek is protakos. It is first in rank, or first in preeminence. It was essentially assigned to the first individual in family, but it became essentially a right. So what is being stated is, Jesus is the first in rank over all creation. And then interesting enough, this is what we come to discover. Right here it says, for by him all things were created. And so oftentimes when an individual would come forward and say, well, Jesus must have been created. He didn't exist. God was doing his thing. And the next thing you know, Jesus essentially existed when he was born of the Virgin Mary. Well, the answer to that is yes, he did as God in the flesh, but Jesus has eternally existed. And so what Paul is doing is he is saying, look back and realize that he by Jesus, the Son of God, who is the exact image of God, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Now, let's take a moment. Let's think about this. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. That should resonate with our hearts all the way back to Genesis 1, verse 1. Jesus was as present as God the Father in creation as God the Father is present in creation, meaning that Jesus has eternally existed. And the importance of this is for us to remember and recognize that Jesus is God in the flesh. Why is this important? Well, some of you may care, some of you may not, but what happened is, is after time, a heretical doctrine by Arian came forward and said, you know what, Jesus was a man, but he really wasn't God, and at times he kind of existed, but he really wasn't truly God, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that doctrine began to permeate into the church, and then later on it was struck down, realizing that as we see Jesus in Scripture, he is fully God and fully man. And the reason that that is so important is, if he was not, if that wasn't true, when Christ goes to the cross to die for us for our sins, we would not be fully reconciled back to God. We continue on and it says, by him all things were created, okay? And invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created by him. Everything was created. So what I want you to take a minute, I want you to look around. Anything that is living, anything that we see, okay, from the microscopic level, okay, out into the great expanse of the heavens, the galaxies that are there, everything was created by him. Now, the other thing that I want to show you is this. It doesn't stop there. What does Paul say? He doesn't say not only was it created by him, what else does it say? created for him. So take a minute, because oftentimes when we look at this, we kind of read quickly. 
Things were created by him and for him. Great, let's move on. No. Things were created by him. He is the creator and sustainer of all for him. Well, why were they for him? Because he is Lord over all. He is king over all. He is ruler over all. So a question that I want to ask you is simply this. If we look to Christ and we want peace with God, one of the things that I want to throw out to you is this. When we look at the fact that all things were created by God, are we willing also to say that all things were created for God? Everything that we have, everything that has been created is for him and for his glory. He is before all things. Interesting. How can he be before all things, yet he was firstborn? Again, this is the idea of being protakos in Greek. Firstborn or first in rank. Not being created or made up. And so in this, Paul continues on and he says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I want to take a minute, and I want to just uh, kind of speak to, to this. Um, when we look essentially on the atomic level, right, we have protons and neutrons, and some of you are going to be better at this than I am, but there is this force, this, this magnetic piece that holds them together and keeps them from what? Flying apart. Right? And what would happen if they do fly apart? Anybody in physics, anybody want to tell me what? All I'm going to tell you is this. It isn't good. It's not good. If protons and neutrons and the atoms begin to fly apart, what do we have? We have a nuclear reaction. <laughs> that isn't good. So think about this for a minute. And one of the things that I want to encourage you in as we look into the world, right? We take for granted the simple fact that we are on a trajectory known as Earth and that Earth continues to rotate around the sun in its orbit and that if it were to differ by a degree, a degree, we would either melt or burn. And I don't know about you, but if we go a degree closer, our SPF 70 right now isn't going to cut it. And we joke about that, but think about the delicate balance that holds the world together. Think about the delicate balance that holds you together. Think about the delicate balance that holds the tiniest molecules together and the greatest expanse of the stars. Who's doing that? Not some cosmic force. Not some scientific ideology. But Jesus. He is the one who holds all things together. And so in that, what I want to show you is this, that we need to realize that Christ indeed is Lord over all creation, and in him all things hold together. A couple of quick things for you. And uh, to be honest with you, I, I'm kind of preaching to myself right now. When we look and we're like, God, what's going to happen here? What are you going to do there? Right? How are you going to do this? What about that? I'm worried about this. One of the things that I go back to and humbly tell myself is, God, if you can hold the universe together, if you're the one that holds all things together, I don't know how this is going to happen, but you got it figured out, and you will hold it together. Because if you can hold the universe together in your hand, 
you can certainly hold whatever it is that I'm dealing with in mind and figure it out. I want to also take a moment, I want to go back and speak to essentially the eternality of Christ, recognizing indeed that we worship Jesus as a member of the triune aspect of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And what we see in John 1, 1 uh, through verse 3 is this, in the beginning was the Word, capitalized, Word being Jesus, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. Okay, another aspect of the eternality of Jesus, but then also the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. He was with God in the beginning. Again, looking back to being the firstborn of creation, meaning he was first in rank, or first in sort of importance, not created by God at the birth of Christ. Through him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. Another statement to the fact, indeed, that Jesus is creator. Jesus holds creation. And that should bring our hearts to a reverent aspect of who Christ is. Now, the other thing, too, interestingly enough, talking about who Jesus is and his eternality is this statement that Jesus makes in John 8, 58. He turns to individuals who are questioning him and asking, who are you? What are you about? And he says this simple phrase, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, I want to take a moment and I want you to, to see what's going on here. Anyone who had any inkling of Old Testament doctrine or Old Testament theology or any understanding of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, or anything of the prophets or any understanding speaking to the coming of the Messiah, this is an extremely bold statement. And if Jesus hadn't already sealed his faith by going to the cross, by saying, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, he certainly would have sealed his fate by turning to people and saying, before Abraham was born, I am. Why? A couple of quick things. Abraham, we know, was essentially the father of the Old Testament. Okay? Jesus is saying, look, I existed before him. And not only that, he's saying, I am. Ego a me in Greek. It's not lego my ego, right? <laughs> ego a me. The most profound statement that we see in scripture. Ego a me. That should resonate. Why? Because God himself, when he appears to Moses at the burning bush, says simply this. In Hebrew, I am. For Jesus to say that statement is for him to say, I am God, ego a me, sealing his fate for blasphemy among those who would say, if you proclaim to be God, you are blaspheming him, sending him to the cross. Yet Jesus does so with truth and confidence. Why? Because he indeed is, I am. And finally, in Isaiah, it's interesting, 43, prophesying about Jesus. This is what it says. It says, before me, speaking to him, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. 
It nullifies creation. It nullifies this aspect that Jesus was created by God. In this simple statement, before me, no God was formed. God was God. God has eternally existed as Son, Father, and Holy Spirit. Nor will there be one after me. Okay? Now, this is the nullification of this idea to Gnostic teaching, right? Oh, Jesus is a good person. It's great. It's fine. Find Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's kind of the first thing you need to do. But after Jesus, we're going we're gonna to come over here. We want to tell you something, because this is what the Gnostics were doing. They were saying, shh, but there's a secret society and only the best of the best are able to ascend to really understand who God is. So if you want to be part of the shh, secret society, we're going to come take you over here and we're going to show you who this Sophia is. Jesus is okay, but there's more. There's more to know. And what I want to tell you is, is so often in our world, people are hearing this idea of Jesus is okay, but there's more. Friends, Jesus is all, and there isn't more. And that is exactly what Paul is writing to here. He's talking about the supremacy of Christ and his sufficiency. He is all that we need. Continues on, and it says, there will be... Uh, uh, there, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, okay, this is the other part, apart from me, there is no Savior. That should resonate with our hearts. Savior from what? What do we need to be saved from? Why are those words being stated, and why did Jesus come? And why is Jesus saying, I am? And why is Jesus saying, if you've seen me, I am the Father? And why is Paul saying he is the exact image of God? Because indeed, Jesus is God in the flesh. And when we hear in Isaiah, apart from me, there is no Savior, it should turn our eyes to the cross, helping us to recognize that we need to be saved from our sin. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's what we recognize. Yes, the birth of Christ is wholly important. Yes, it is filled with joy. Yes, we rejoice in the infancy of the babe in the manger, God in the flesh. But brothers and sisters in Christ, many babies have been born. Many leaders have come. Many leaders have died. But only one went to the cross on our behalf to forgive us of our sins, and that is Jesus. And only one can bring peace with God, and that is Jesus. And that's what we see in just a minute. So the first thing that I want to show you is in finding peace with God, we need to realize that Christ is Lord over all creation and in him all things hold together. But the next thing that I want you to see in verses 18 through 20 is this, that Christ is Lord of redemption and he makes peace through his blood shed on the cross. He is the one who redeems us. He is the Lord and redeems us back to himself. And he is the only one can make, who can make peace through his shed blood on the cross. Paul continues and he says, he is the head of the body. So not only does he talk about the supremacy, the eternality of Jesus, the one who created all things, he then turns and he says, in the supremacy, in the preeminence of who Jesus is, he is also the head of the church. He uses the analogy, essentially, the head of the body, which is the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. He has been the one who will always eternally be. For God was pleased 
to have all his fullness dwell in him. Think about this for a minute. Number one, it pleased God, but also to have all his fullness, all that he is, not a part, not a portion, because other heretical doctrines said, well, you get a little bit of Jesus, okay? Jesus was kind of 50% God in the flesh, but also 50% man. Or there's other doctrines that would say that at times, Jesus would kind of morph back and forth. So in this aspect of scripture, Jesus would come forward and, and he was certainly fully man there. But oh, in this time, he would show up and oh, he was fully God there. And so he was kind of this switching agent that like he had this like switch that he could flip back and forth. And he's like, oh, well, for this situation, I better turn to man. Beep, okay, now I'm just acting as man. Oh, well, this one, boop, I better switch over here and be God. And what we have to recognize is that the wholeness of Christ, the fullness of God dwelt in him. And the interesting part of that is if you look at the verb there, dwell, okay, it's continual, okay? Dwell, continual. It's not dwelt for a period. It's not like it dwelt for a moment. It's dwell eternally. And that is so important to see in recognizing that who we have in Jesus is God in the flesh. Why is that important? Well, let's take a moment and let's read the next passage. It says this, and through him, okay, not only does the fullness of God dwell in him, through him, to reconcile to himself all things. If you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to circle the word reconcile because it's there for a reason. Why would we need to be reconciled and what is the purpose behind this? What are things on earth or things in heaven? He is reconciling to himself something, all things on earth and all things in heaven. How is he doing this? By making peace. Why do we need peace? That should be our next question. So circle the word peace. What... what, what what, what do we need peace with, right? Well, he's making peace, and how does he do it? Through his blood shed on the cross. So we should reverse back and we should think about, well, wait a minute. Number one, why is the word peace in there? Number two, why do we need to be reconciled or what needs to be reconciled? And what we have to see is this. We need to be reconciled back to God because we are separate from God at the fall. Because of the sins of Adam and Eve, because of what happened in the garden, man had been separated from God. But yet the good news of the gospel is, is we can be brought back to God through Jesus Christ. We can be reconciled to him. And how are we done? Well, it's through the blood of Jesus. How are we brought to peace? Well, it's because we're at war. We must recognize that apart from God, apart from Jesus, we are at war with God. And so if we want peace, the manner of how we have peace is through Christ shedding his blood on the cross. The study Bible says this, the basis for Christ's reign of peace is the blood of his cross. The reason we celebrate peace with God is because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. The cross is truly pivotal. It's the pivotal point in human and cosmic history. Everything points to the cross. 
So when Paul writes this, he says, not only do we have the fullness of God, not only is Jesus the one who has created all things, not only is the one who he holds everything together, but he is the one who brings us peace by reconciling us back to God, and he does so by the blood shed on the cross. And so we realize that Christ is Lord of redemption, and he makes peace through his blood shed on the cross. One of the things that I want to to encourage you in is when we look and we we see essentially Christ on the cross, we recognize the travesty that it was. We recognize the pain that he endured. We recognize how hard it must have been for him. But the other thing that I want you to see is this, that as that occurs and as his blood is being shed, we are being brought to peace with God. God because of what Christ has done. And that is why we see the statement made essentially in Isaiah, as we talked about it, that apart from him, there is no savior. That's what we're being saved from. We're being saved from our sins. We're being saved from an eternal destiny apart from God, which is hell. Interestingly enough, if you wanna talk about it, who holds all things together? Jesus. How does he hold them together? Atoms. What happens when atoms are held together? This. What happens when atoms are not held together? Atomic blasts. What are atomic blasts? Hot. Hell. It's very interesting, isn't it? Where there is no God, things aren't held together. It's a very hot place. Very interesting ideology in that. He is the one that holds all things together, and for that we are eternally grateful. Now, the final thing that I want you to see in this, in bringing peace with God, is that Christ is Lord over our reconciliation by making us holy and blameless in his sight. We continue in this, and it says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, don't miss this. Because often what we like to do is we like to come forward before God and say, you know, God, I'm a good person. I'm doing good things, I'm a nice person, I go to church, I help old ladies across the street, I don't cheat, I don't lie, I'm good, right? Here's what I'm gonna tell you, and you've heard it before, it's very cliche, but it's so important. Jesus didn't die to make good people better, Jesus died to make dead people alive, and that's why he shed his blood on the cross, to bring us peace with God. Right here in this statement, you were once alienated from God. What does that mean? I don't know about you, but if you're an alien, right? The simple word there is not a part of. You are not part of whatever the entity that is being described. You are an alien. I am an alien of Mexico. I am not a citizen of Mexico. I can go to Mexico, but I'm still an alien of it. My citizenship would be if I became a citizen of Mexico or I have citizenship in the United States. Therefore, I'm part of that. But when Paul uses this word, you were alienated from God, okay? And then he solidifies it. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. He is delineating the fact that we were separated from God. Not only we were separated from him, but we were his enemy, Hence why he uses the word earlier, bringing peace. If you're an enemy, you are at war. How do you end war? You either win it or you establish peace over it. How does Jesus win the war? 
by going to the cross and triumphing over it, bringing peace so that we might have eternal life through him. But now, okay, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now, I've said before, whenever you see a but in the Bible, you need to pay attention because it's turning to something different. But now, what? He has reconciled you. Okay? The word reconcile. Let's take a minute and let's look at this. Okay? Big word. Akopatoxai. Say that ten times fast. Okay? Akopatoxai. To reconcile means to restore to friendly relations, cause to coexist in harmony, to make or show to be compatible. Right? So, in him, right, we are now reconciled. We have now been restored to a friendly relation. We have been caused to coexist in a harmonious relationship. And we have been shown to be compatible. Well, what weren't we compatible with before? We were not compatible with the holiness of God because apart from God, we are unholy. And God is holy. And the only thing that brings holiness to God is Jesus Christ. And so when we stand before God, we don't stand before God in our holiness. We stand before God in the holiness of Jesus Christ. And for that, we must remember and worship as we stare at a babe in the manger, his mission, which was to go to the cross, to bring our holiness about. He continues on, and then he says this, not only, right, are we reconciled, so not only are we now in a friendly relationship with God, not only are we compatible with God, not only do we sort of no longer have this enmity before God, but also what does he do? He does this. Okay? Through his physical body and his death, he presents us to be what? Holy. Don't miss this. When we stare at the babe in the manger, we stare at the babe who has come to die on a cross to shed his blood, to give his body so that we can be reconciled, brought back into a harmonious relationship with God and then be declared holy, blameless. So the other thing that I want to encourage you in is, is whatever it is that might be holding you back, whatever area in your life that you might think, you know what, I'm just not good enough. Read this passage again. Because in Christ, you've been reconciled back to God and you've been made holy because of what Jesus done, not because of what you have done. And that's why we can come and worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. But not only are we made holy, right? Okay? But we're without blemish. This should read back to individuals. They should look back to the Old Testament form of sacrifice. In fact, it should even take us back to, my, uh, to Micah when we were talking about blemished sacrifices. We sometimes come to the altar feeling like we come with a blemish. We sometimes come before God thinking, you know what, I'm just not good enough. You know what, God, I'm trying to give you everything that I have, but the sins in my life just mean that I'm not good enough to be in your presence. Nothing could be more holy from the truth. And so also, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we celebrate peace with God, 
May we know that we can essentially approach the altar of God through Jesus Christ, knowing because of what Christ has done, we are without blemish. Done. So whatever blemish you may be holding on to right now, whatever you might be thinking is, this is the reason why I'm not good enough to go to God, or why God doesn't care about me, or why God doesn't want to be with me, you can look and you can say, because Christ, the maker and sustainer, creative of all things, has shed his blood on the cross to bring me to God and reconcile to me as holy and without blemish, I can worship him. And then here's what's interesting. Without accusation. Free from accusation. And so just rest on that for a minute. Whatever the enemy might be trying to do to accuse you right now, you're not good enough to be here. You shouldn't be here. You don't deserve this. Look at you. Look at what you've done. Look at what you're not doing. In Jesus who has reconciled you through the cross to himself, you are free. You are holy in the sight of God. You don't have any blemish, and you are free from accusation. And may that bring great peace to your heart today as we worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Paul basically continues on, and he says this, Notice this, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. I want to take a minute, and I'm just going to camp on this just for a second, okay? This isn't meaning that our salvation will end. It's not meaning that, like, you get salvation and then you can lose it. But what we have to recognize is that we're called to continue in our faith, okay? It's not a one and done, right? It's not, oh, great, Jesus saved me, okay, fine. You know, I've got insurance and all as well. It's a continual aspect of trusting in God and allowing him to be Lord of your life. And so as we go through Christmas, finding peace with God is a joyous thing that we can have. Paul continues and he says essentially this, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, what are you established and firm in? We'll go back to what's been stated by Paul right here, that Jesus is Lord of all creation, and in him all things hold together. Realize that Christ is Lord of redemption, and he has made peace through his blood on the cross. And I am now at peace with God because of what Christ has done. I have been reconciled to him. I am now holy. I am now unblemished. I am now without accusation. And I'm free from the sins that entangle me. I don't know about you, but that brings great peace to my heart in a world that is so far from finding peace today. Not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. How can the enemy disrupt our peace? by trying to move us from the hope that's held out in the gospel. It's not good enough. There's gotta be more. Jesus isn't the best. Jesus isn't supreme. Jesus is not the one who can fully forgive me of my sins. I'm not holy in him, right? All of those things. Continue in your faith and hold firm in the good news that Christ being fully died, died on a cross to forgive us of our sins and to bring us to peace with him so that we might have eternal life. 
making us holy and blameless before his sight. We ask this question, how do we find peace with God? This is what I want to leave you with this morning. Real peace with God. Real peace with God is found only in Christ. Because through the cross, he has secured our redemption and made us holy and blameless in God's sight. When we look to the babe in the manger, may we recognize that the babe in the manger was on a mission, and that was to go to the cross on our behalf. And so the thing that I want to leave you with is this. As we go about worshiping Jesus this Christmas, I want you to remember and realize this simple fact, that we were created by Jesus, but we were created for Jesus. So you've been created by Jesus, but you were created for Jesus. And therefore, let's make him first in everything. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we talk about peace with you. We look at what Christ has done on the cross to bring that peace to us. Father, we realize that God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, came and lived on this earth and died upon a cross to bring us eternal life. Father, may we realize the great cost that it took. And in that, may we realize, too, that the peace that Christ gives isn't just a passing peace. It isn't just a momentary peace, but it is an eternal one. Because of what Christ has done, we have been brought to peace with God. We are no longer enemies of his. We are no longer aliens of him. We are citizens in his kingdom with full rights and privileges. We are now holy because of Christ. We are now blameless and without blemish because of Christ. And we are also free from accusation of the enemy because of Christ. And so, Lord, with all of that, may we hold true to the truth of the gospel and may those simple facts bring peace to our hearts, realizing indeed what we truly have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, because of that, may we realize that we have everything in Christ. And with that, may we worship him with everything and put him first in our lives. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus, and we ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say,